This podcast is offered by Black Mountain Zen on the web at blackmountainzen.org. All public offerings are made possible by the kind donations from people like you. Many of you know this story of Angulimala. Okay, then you'll get my version since most of you don't. Um, so it, it's a, a classic story from early Buddhism. But here's how I'd like you to relate to it. Um, relate to it as a story about practice, your practice. No? Um, it's an interesting story, it's a little exotic. I think I heard it had been made into a movie. Have you ever heard that? Okay, here's the story. Maybe it's going to be made into a movie. <laughs> so there's this person in, in India at the time of the Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha, and he was practicing with the guru, and his name was Ahamsaka, the one who practices peace or nonviolence, ahimsa, ahimsaka. And he was a very talented practitioner and was the, the star student of the guru. This, the guru had many students, and he was the star student. In fact, he mastered the many teachings that the teacher had to offer. But somehow in the process, he stirred up the envy, the animosity of many of the other students. And, um, and as an expression of their animosity and envy, they told the teacher that Ahamsaka had been trying to seduce the teacher's wife, and actually had succeeded in seducing the teacher's wife. And here's how the teacher responded. The teacher said to Ahamsaka, he said, okay, you've qualified, you've graduated, your dharma transmitted, and, um, but here's what I want you to do in payment for all these teachings I've given you. I want a thousand little fingers from people's right hands. And, um, and Ahamsaka was such a dedicated uh, practitioner. You do what your teacher tells you. But he said, okay. And he said about um, collecting these fingers. There's a part of the story I've I got to tell you, I don't, I don't quite understand. Now, why he didn't just chop off the fingers, but apparently he killed every person. So, so he killed each person and cut off the fingers. And um, in order to keep count of them, he kept them on a string. In order to keep the the string of little fingers available, he wore them around his neck. Um, and apparently he got up to um, 990 something and then he thought, now wouldn't it be good if the very last one was his mother? 
the last person he killed into the little finger he got. And as you can imagine, by this time, a, a lot had changed in who he was, you know, that the murdering 990-odd people had obviously influenced him and affected who he was. And then he heard about Shakyamuni Buddha, so he decided, now wouldn't it be great, wouldn't that be even better than killing my mother, as the 1,000th one, to kill the Buddha? So he decided that's what he would do. Now in the meantime, Shakyamuni Buddha, and he terrorized this whole area of India that he lived in. So, in the meantime, Shakyamuni Buddha had heard about this person collecting the 1,000 fingers. And I think, I'm not totally clear on this detail, but I think 1,000 fingers translates as Angulimala. <clears throat> and that's what he was now known as, you know, the, or I think it translates as the necklace of little fingers. Do you know? Okay. Yes? The necklace of little fingers. And so Shakyamuni Buddha decided to go to that area because everybody was so terrorized and anxious and frightened by Angulimala. And, and he was walking peacefully through um, the forest when Angulimala saw him and thought, great, now is a great time to kill Shakyamuni Buddha and get that last finger. And what a great finger to have is the last one. So he started chasing after Shakyamuni Buddha, who was walking peacefully and steadily and mindfully, the way you would expect a Buddha to walk. And an Angulimala kept running after him, but couldn't catch up with him. And then eventually he called out to Shakyamuni Buddha and said, Stop! Stop! And the Buddha answered, I am stopped. It's you that needs to stop. And um, this set up a brief but powerful exchange between them, in, in which Angulimala was deeply touched by this teaching, you know, that, that he was all caught up in something that he couldn't stop, and he had met someone who was completely stopped. And he decided to ordain as a monk. And so he ordained as a monk. And this woman who was um, pregnant and was having a very difficult time giving birth uh, was nearby. And this was much later in this time as a monk. And the Buddha said to Angulimala, you should go and help that lady. And he said, well, what should I say? And he said, Shakyamuni said, you should tell her that in this life, since you were born, you have never harmed a living being. And you wish for her this abiding, peaceful nonviolence. <coughs> And Angulimala looked at the Buddha and he said, but how could I say that? Me of all people, how could I say that? And the Buddha said, 
Um, okay. In this life, since I've been born in the way, I have never harmed a living being. And so that became... And so he said it to the lady, the woman, and she gave birth. It, it helped ease her anxiety, and she gave birth successfully. And this became his slogan, his mantra, the, the way he approached life and approached each person. And, uh, and something in him uh, deeply changed. But even though something in him deeply changed, there were still people who remembered him as this mass murderer, this, this extreme violent person. And when they would see him pass as a monk, they would get sticks and beat him and throw rocks at him. And uh, Angolimala just uh, accepted that. So be it. No? This is how it is. And... Um, and and the way the story, the version of it that I'm familiar with, these two kind of coexisted. That he became renowned for his peacefulness, and there was still lingering animosity and active aggression towards him. Okay, now here's my question to you in the realm of practice. What detail in that story stands out for you in the realm of practice? Um, I guess that two wrongs don't make a right. Two wrongs don't make a right. Thank you. Why did he obey? Did he obey his guru? Did he obey his guru? Yeah, he did. That he did obey his guru. Is that what you were going to say? No, my question was, why did his guru ask him to perform that time? So maybe as a personal statement that that, for you, was perplexing. Mm-hmm. Why would guru ask for such a horrific uh, activity? Okay. That he had the opportunity to begin again. Mm. Uh, maybe you should question the guru, or, or if you view yourself as guru, like in Didi yoga or something. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to look at that. Like, because well, I don't, I don't know. Or maybe I don't know. Just like you are a guru or the eternal guru, uh, but so is. I, but I don't know. So within the context of the story. He shouldn't have gone around cutting off people's hands if he's in Dahimza, or was it, or I didn't why did catch that. So within the context of the story, why was he not guided by some inner sense of propriety? Why did he simply follow such an extraordinary violent instruction? Maybe it was out of coldness, out of not being taken seriously by his, uh, by his contemporaries. But somehow within... The, Within this story, that's the detail that 
Like, why did he go that grab, comes forward for you. Yeah, why did he go and cut off people's <laughs> fingers? Why right. did he Takini's kind of with necklace of skulls? Or Kali? Yeah. Okay, thank you. The difference between a guru and a teacher. Mm. Okay, thank you. That he didn't retaliate. That he didn't retaliate? Yeah. Uh, the chasing. The chasing. Chasing after uh, fingers, and then also chasing after the Buddha. Okay, thank you. Yes. That phrase, uh, since I've been born in the way. Yes. Like, it uh, offers, like, uh, this um, new life. Mm. Thank you. I was, oh, was going to, on that, I was thinking of the part when the Buddha said, since I've been born, and he said, since I've been born, I haven't harmed a being. Yes. And when he questioned that, but I, I've harmed beings. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Um, So here's the exercise in, in this story. The exercise in this story is here's this story with all these details. <coughs> and then something, in the midst of all those details, something comes forward and strikes you as, well, look at that. You know? And this is our life. You know, we're, we're living our life and we're having all these experiences. And then it's like we pull something forward and say, well, look at that. Yeah? And, and what is being pulled forward is relevant, but the selection process, you know, the, the one who's pulling it forward, the mindset, the disposition. So it, it, it's a little bit like we select something, and then there's a request to practice with it. There's a request to relate to it in the context of practice. Um, what struck me is I wondered if um, the phrase that was used, being born in a way, whether, whether it meant that this person had really looked at what they'd done and had to examine it and face it, or whether being born in the way was sort of a I've been on a jail-free card. <laughs> mm. Okay. Oh, I got out of this another thing that I just remembered uh, is that uh, even if you're like into ahimsa or even if you're vegetarian, you can still be violent. Or maybe you're not aware of how you're violent. And what's also interesting is when you're looking at a story, uh, like anything, is you have paranoid ideations It's selecting, uh, like you, you naturally, the flow of thoughts and that, that arise you naturally select stuff out of it. But it's interesting, you aren't, I'm, just, even if you are vegetarian, you can still be violent, like, without, without being aware of it. Or what is violence, or like, you can't see the effect of all of your actions. I mean, maybe, I don't know. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
you can't see the effect of all your actions. Yeah, because there's so many different mind fields or Buddha fields. Maybe that's something that came forward from you from this story? Is maybe I'm more violent than I uh, think I am. Hmm. Okay, just a second. Let someone who hasn't spoken. Go ahead. It strikes me that his actions, both good and bad, are not actions that he chose in a way. Like, well, he chose them, but they're all dictated to him by someone else. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, your, the, the detail of his, of his past catching up with him and uh, not being able to freely travel and getting attacked by people because of, because of his past. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Stopping. Stopping. Okay. okay. So in... in there's a word, shamatha or samatha, in Pali, and it, translated in two ways. Maybe it's translated in many ways, but most usually it's translated in two ways, and one of them is stopping. So, uh, we're all the product of causes and conditions. We we all grew up. In, in some system, you know, with, with all its intrigues in, in, in ways in which it inspired us and brought us here to practice, in ways in which it hurt us and we hurt others. And, and these are mixed together. You know? and, um, I remember when someone told me he came to city center and he was recently ordained and he said well here's how it happened I was talking to my teacher and my teacher said you should get ordained and he looked at the teacher and he said I should get ordained? I'm a heroin addict (laughs) and the teacher looked at him and said well that's better than being a mass murderer yes you should get ordained and then he started to sew and from the moment he started the soul, he never, never did heroin again. And it's like, you know, how mysterious and wonderful human life, right? We can get ourselves into so much trouble. And yet, it's also possible to stop. You know, it's also possible to change course. Uh And it's not like, well then, all your karma, all the the consequences of your previous actions magically float away. They'll they'll, they'll produce whatever they produce. Uh And, And in a way that stopping and turning, you may think of it as a single act. You, you, you meet the Buddha, you, you meet the wise teacher who looks at you and says, you are Buddha, you are completely worthy of practice. And, and it shatters your notion that you're not. You have no idea 
of all the ways I'm screwed up, all the things I'm clinging to, all the hurt I've caused. But since you've been born in the way, something like that. And then it's interesting, the term shamatha is usually thought of in the context, in the yoga of meeting the moment completely. There's the yoga of meeting the moment completely and, and letting that cause a radical recalibration. The, 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 the context of how a life is related to shifts. Mm. You know, in spiritual terms, you know, to be born again. You know. And then there's living according to. Mm. And then to what degree is that? an internal process, to what degree is it? You know, there's a koan that says, Iko goes to the teacher and says, what is Buddha? And the teacher says, Iko is Buddha. Um, To what degree is it internal affirmation, confirmation, and what degree is it the support of other? the teacher, the sangha, the dharma, whatever. Um, So sometimes in Zen, we, we talk about body and mind dropped away. You know, this is Dogen Zenji's famous phrase. And to, and to my mind, it's it's notable that modern scholarships now says I'm not sure how they get there but this is what they say that Dogen misunderstood the phrase that the teacher was saying to the monk that was sitting beside him and in his misunderstanding he had he dropped away all his hang ups, all the things he was holding on to, all the ways in which he was wrestling and struggling with the consequences of his karmic life. Um, You know, what is it in Zazen? Right there, when you notice a narrative, a stream of linked thoughts, ideas, images, embellished with emotions, when it's noticed and it's dropped, you know, and you just return to the breath. You, 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 you know, often that stream is a powerful expression of our life, of what we are, of what's important, of what we don't like, of what we wish would happen, of what we dread happening, you know, and to just drop it and come back to the body and the breath. Mm-hmm. 
some ways I think about this story as that uh, you know there's something marvelous when you first sit you know in the first couple of times you sit and it's such a big deal you know and it's it's a little bit exciting and scary and all sorts of things and then you keep sitting and it's like yeah yeah sitting I can do that done it been there and how many thousands of times you know maybe if we could wear them like a necklace around our neck that we've paused let go dropped off that mind stream and returned to body breath how how can it be how can we remind ourselves what an extraordinarily potent and powerful and relevant thing it is in terms of relating to a human life and in our zazen you know why is it to dispose body mind in a way that makes it available for such an activity and when the activity happens what is it to let it be what is it to let it resonate what is it to let it be a potent event rather than almost like a momentary pause until we reconnect to this world according to me to the me according to me what what is it to enable it to be transformative how much can someone else teach us this and how much is this the product of of the inquiry of the resonance of the workings of our inner being yeah. so in soto zen sometimes we say zazen is a koan zazen is an inexhaustible inquiry every time we sit down okay what's happening how is it being related to and what happens when it's related to in that way and how is it to relate to it in a way that illuminates the nature of what is um so something about stopping and then the other translation common uh, translation of shamatha or samatha in pali is calm abiding yeah. it's like there, there's there's this process of stopping and often i call it the process of pausing you know cuz um it, it's a powerful challenge to make a radical shift but the practice of pausing you know when when you notice the mind caught up to pause 
to notice, acknowledge. And interestingly, the last part is not push away. The last part is not suppress. The last part is to experience completely. To notice, acknowledge, experience. And in the experiencing, there no longer is someone outside of the experience making a story about it. There no longer is someone outside the experience making a story about it. Now, if you did turn it into a kind of progression, the same thing about doing this hundreds and thousands of times until it starts to become familiar territory. Okay, what is that kind of availability? Well, it's an experientially learned thing. And, and, And what is it to pause and connect rather than to pause and then start doing something to it? Oh, I'm meditating. I'm supposed to do something to this experience. What is it to allow the experience to be exactly what it is? So, in a longitudinal sense, we do it, and 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 all the time it keeps teaching us variations on a theme you start to see, oh, actually there's a way in which I'm kind of suppressing my experience. Oh, there's a way in which I'm not really letting it go, I'm just sort of like holding my breath a little bit and then picking it up again. Oh, there's a way in which I'm trying to detach from the experience. I'm trying to separate from being me being this karmic stream. Um, and I would say something like this, that we all have a genius for ways in which we make up a variation on a theme. You know? Our suppression, our denial, our controlling urges, that, that we all have a genius for that. We have an endless repertoire and that's part of what we study. You know? it's, it's like coming to terms with who you are and the patterns of how it is for you. It's like hearing a story and noticing what part stands out for you and thinking, okay, well that's a place to start. Isn't it interesting that that, of all those details, that was the one that stood out? So this is what makes shikantaza, in a way, a sophisticated practice. But to remember that the initiation of shikantaza is very straightforward. You attend to posture, you attend to breath, 
you attend to the state of mind, you attend to what arises in the mind, and when you notice it, experience, and let go. And more, more fully, experience all the ways that isn't what happens. What's it like to cling? And what's it like to not be able to let go of something? You know? What's it like to make it an issue of control? I know it should happen and I'm going to make it happen. What's it like to suppress? This is about being calm, about not, about some kind of purity, about some kind of sanctity. Yeah. Well, if you think about what I'm saying, um, you know, notice, connect, experience. So in the experiencing, if you remember what I said earlier, when there's nothing separate, making something, then the experience just sort of like takes care of itself. It's, it's a momentary event. It's impermanent. It, it's like the letting go is inherent in its impermanence. Mm, so you don't really need to let go, you just need to experience yeah. that. It kind of involves letting go automatically. Yes. And, and in a way we could say this is the uh, we do about eight fifteen or eight thirty eight fifteen okay um, yeah okay um, in a way we could say experiencing and letting the experience be just itself is realizing the emptiness of it, you know. It's like the narrative makes it a something. The narrative gives it a, a kind of solidity. You know? It's like if you think about it in, in your internal process in Zazen, experience happens as a stream. Like that story, it's a stream of images and ideas. And consciousness says, this is the important one. And then, you know, you have, you know, it's important because it's meaningful. It's, it's important because it resonates with some aspect of my personality or psychological makeup. It's important because of the emotion it triggers at this moment. Hmm? And, and in that importance... It's it's reified. It's turned into a solid thing. When it's when it, when it's experienced, it, it, it's more like a dynamic play. It's it's more like an energy. It's more like something that comes into being, caused by causes and conditions, and falls away. It, it's the activity of mind that continually reifies it, that, that, 
that gives it the quality of solidity and permanence. And emptiness, shunyata, you know, Tiknathan translates it as interbeing, the interplay of causes and conditions. That's what the word shunyata is referring to. Now, when we get that, you know, we, we, when you're in the when you're in the throes of something, and you get that, oh, there is stuff happening here, and then there's me having this kind of response to it, and and it's a dynamic play, you know, it's active, and and it's coming into being through those arising causes and conditions meeting each other in this moment. It comes into being, it falls out of being. And I'd like to come at this from a poem. But I'd like to give, read you this little quote um, at, at the end of uh, this. It's, it's a little article by a student of Norman's Ruth Maseki. She wrote a, a little article about a, a poem written by a Palestinian poet. And here's a little quote from him. In my poetry, Taha Muhammad Ali says, there is no Pal- he grew up in Palestine and lived in Israel with all the turmoil of the violence and, as you can imagine, its own kind of Angolimala story being enacted. In my poetry... There is no Palestine, there is no Israel, but in my poetry there is suffering, sadness, longing, fear, and these together make results. Palestine and Israel. In my poetry there is no Palestine or Israel, but there is suffering, sadness, longing, fear, and these together make the results, Palestine and Israel. The art is to take from life something real and then create it anew with your imagination. And I would say the practice of Zen is to meet the moment, to take from life the experience of the moment, something real, and to embrace it, to meet it with the intention and the expression of the intention of practice you know, and create something in you. Hmm? And, and let me read this poem. It's, um, it's very interesting. The poem's called Revenge. You know, that sense of um, aversion animosity that causes within us hardening, a resentment, a sense of something's being wronged and it needs to be righted. At times I wish I could meet in a duel the man who killed my father and raised our home, expelling me into a narrow country. And if he killed me, I'd rest at last. And if I were ready, 
I would take my revenge. You know, how easy it is to play that story and add our own details. But if it came to light when my rival appeared that he had a mother waiting for him or a father who'd put his hand over his heart's place in his chest whenever his son was late by just a quarter hour for their meeting they'd set, then I couldn't kill him. Then I wouldn't kill him even if I could. Likewise, I could not murder him if it were soon made clear that he had a brother or sisters who loved him and constantly longed to see him, or if he had a wife to greet him or children who couldn't bear his absence and from whom and, and whom his gifts would thrill, or if he had friends or companions, neighbors he knew, or allies from prison or a hospital room or classmates from his school, asking him and sending him regards. So the way in which there can be turning, there can be some agent of calm abiding, there can be some agent through which we're reborn, you know, through which the, the, the drama, the painful drama we've added to our suffering, our hurt, that helps it to persist, that helps it to be ingrained and in, in like part of our cellular structure. You, you know that there there is in this world there are also agents that can turn it, that can send it in a different direction. You know? There can be forgiveness. There can be understanding. There can be compassion. You know? So in the territory between the moments of pausing and noticing and the ease, the freedom, where it's all just an interplay arising in the moment. You know? There's nothing to resist and there's nothing to cling to. There's no attainment and there's nothing that needs to be swept away. So in the territory between those two, you know, in, in the interplay that we create with our human hearts and minds and with each other, that you know, as the Cohen says, as Uman says, medicine and disease arise together. We create resentment and we create forgiveness. We harden our hearts and we soften our hearts. You know, we hate somebody and then we remember. But you know, if he had a brother or a sister, or friends, or a father, or a mother who loved him, or children. You know? when, you're, when, when people are being trained to fight wars, the important thing 
is to dehumanize the enemy. So when we, when we are in the throes of our aggression, we forget the human element of this person that they have moments of tenderness, of vulnerability. They have people who are excited to see them and sad when they leave. That that very compassion is transformative too. In in this great territory between the pausing, the stopping, and the seeing through and the emptiness. This is where we learn how to be human. This is how we learn how to enter the world. You know, how can we ever enact the Bodhisattva vow if we don't explore within ourselves the inner wars and discover how to create peace? how to experience the potency of forgiveness and compassion. And you think, well, that's a great place for the poem to stop. It's so sweet. It's so exalting. But he doesn't stop. And and it's interesting. I remember when I first read this, I was a little troubled by the rest of the poem. And here's what it says. But if he turned out to be on his own, cut off like a branch from a tree, without a mother or a father, with neither a brother nor sister, wifeless, without a child, without kin or neighbors or friends, colleagues or companions, then I'd add not a thing to his pain within that aloneness. Not the torment of death, not the sorrow of passing away, Instead, I'd be content to ignore him when I passed him on the street. As I convinced myself that paying him no attention in itself was a kind of revenge. As we watch what we cling to, you know, as, as we notice and feel its authority, you know, um, it's humbling. You know, when you watch your mind in zazen and you watch its unrelenting nature, you know. Um, when you see that your karma continues even after you've met the Buddha and you've taken on the robes and maybe even done good works and, and, and even there is within you a part of you that does, has, does embody ahimsa, you know, that still there's other forces at play too. And 
There, there's an interesting phrase in uh, in one of the commentaries on the koans, and it says, "Dropping the water pitcher and not even looking back." It's like, uh, but it's pointing towards. It's like. Not becoming all agitated and distressed by your own, the ways in which you're still stuck or clinging, you know? A kind of a radical honesty, it, it seems almost like shamelessness. Yeah, that is where I get stuck, you know? When, 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 I, truly feel, when I truly feel compassion, and the warmth and tenderness it creates. It washes away. But at other times, other things happen. <laughs> There's other parts of me that can come forth. You know? So can we practice a kind of radical honesty? You know? Okay. You know? Can, can there be um, a humility that knows that about um, this one, that knows that about all of us? You know, we do get stuck. And it isn't the entirety of who we are. Huh? And that practicing is a daily event. You know? You don't have your moment of compassion and then that's it. You coast on that. <laughs> no. It's like day after day. You come back to your cushion. You come back to who you are and how you are. And... Uh, And whether it appears to be a medicine or appears to be a disease, it's a teacher. And you meet it, and as the poet says, you meet it, and the power of your vow is, is, is what brings to it the, the turning. Is, is what keeps the, the path, keeps on the path. Okay, well, for good measure, I'll read, no, I'll read a different poem. <laughs> These are short little poems by Brumi. Let yourself be silently drawn by a stronger pull of what you truly love. Keep walking, though there's no place to get to. Don't try to see into the far distance. That's not for human beings. Move within, but don't move the way that fear makes you move. I lived on the lip of insanity wanting to know reasons, knocking on a door, it opens, 
I've been knocking from the inside. Okay. Thank you.